Good morning, everyone. It is a delight uh, to be back, and uh, I think the last time I was here was about three years ago when I was uh, moderator of the General Assembly, and it's great to be back uh, this morning with you. Whenever I walk into the Knox Sanctuary, it feels like home still. It still feels like home. I bring greetings from uh, my family, from uh, the children, from my wife Lynn. She's got responsibilities at uh, our church this morning. Uh, wanted to be here, but uh, we're delighted to be here and to see what God is doing here at Knox, uh, this place, this congregation, uh, you people that we continue to love so much and pray for. If you've got a Bible, and I know there are Bibles in the pews, I invite you to turn with me to our text this morning. We're going to hear from the Gospel of Luke and reading at chapter 18, Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, a short story in the narrative and the life of Jesus, and we're going to... uh, settle in this text this morning for a few minutes together and uh, see what God through God's Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, has to, uh, to say to us this morning. So let's hear these words uh, from Luke 18, starting at verse 35 from God's uh, holy word this morning. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God this morning. Let me offer just a prayer for you and for us again as we come to God's word. Lord, we come from the busyness of life, from the busyness of day-to-day routines into this place, and we've sung your praise and prayed, and now we stand and we sit before you and we wait for you to speak. Let your gospel come now, Lord, to us in our need, wherever we are. Let it come not only with word, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Amen. Friends, the gospel lesson this morning puts us right on the road with Jesus. 
just outside the city, just outside the town of Jericho. The story that we've just read is a story about a blind beggar on the roadside who is healed by Jesus and who receives his sight. And before we look at what actually happens in the story this morning and what it might mean for us as God's people, as followers of Jesus, or as those who are seeking this morning, let's just take a moment and stand back from the story and look at the larger context. One of the things I'm constantly telling my students is that a text without a context is a pretext. And we want to make sure that we set the context so that we understand what's going on here. In verse 35, it says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, there's two questions that immediately sort of come to our minds uh, on the basis of that verse. Why was Jesus on this road going into Jericho? And who was this blind man who was sitting on the roadside begging. We're going to bracket that second question for a few minutes and come back to it later. But I want to focus, first of all, on this question, why was Jesus on the road going into Jericho? And the short answer, my friends, is that Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And we need to understand that if we want to get the full import of this text this morning. In the paragraphs immediately before our passage in Luke 18, and if you have your Bibles, you can look at these, verses 31 to 34, Jesus there predicts his death. It says, the text says that he took the 12 aside, he took the 12 disciples aside, and he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, that his mission was about to be fulfilled, that he was going to be arrested, mocked, tried, tortured, and executed, and that on the third day he would rise again. And if we look earlier in Luke 17 and 18, we learn that Jesus and his disciples were traveling down from the north, down from Galilee, through Samaria, along the west bank of the Jordan River, on their way up to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, to the cross, to fulfill the work for which the Father sent him, and that road took him straight through Jericho. Where was Jericho? Well, those of you who have looked at Bible maps will know that Jericho is northeast of Jerusalem, about 18 miles, about 30 kilometers by road. Travelers go south, that is, they go down to Jerusalem in terms of their going south, but here's the thing, they're actually going up because Jerusalem's height is approximately 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level, and so the road ascends from Jericho up toward Jerusalem about six-tenths of a mile or about a kilometer, about 3,300 feet. And so travelers and merchants and pilgrims and soldiers have for centuries, if you get this, gone down 
to Jerusalem, but have gone up to Jerusalem at the same time, going south to go up. And it was a dangerous and a difficult road. In Luke 10, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus uses the Jericho road, you'll remember, as the setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30 in that parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So Jesus is on the road. He set his face to Jerusalem, and that road takes him south towards the north gate of Jericho. And from Jericho, then they would begin their last leg of the journey, continuing south, but ascending toward Jerusalem. And then in the next chapter in Luke chapter 19, after our passage, the gospel writer, in fact, describes the the triumphal entry of Jesus with his disciples into Jerusalem and the events then unfold of what we call, call Holy Week. And so this story, this encounter of Jesus and this blind man sitting beside the road happens in this context. We're moving toward the end of the story, the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. It's a pivotal moment in the journey south, upwards toward Jerusalem. So that's the context. Well, what happened on that road? Well, a blind man heard this crowd going by as they made their way in toward the city and toward the town, and he wanted to know what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 39, these astonishing words, and I want you to get these words because we're going to camp here for a moment. Those who led the way, rebuked him, and told him to be quiet. Those who led the way, rebuked him, and told him to be quiet. Now, who were those who led the way? We're not told exactly. We're not told for sure but we do know that they're at the head of the line. It's possible that they might have been some bystanders who'd heard about Jesus and wanted to get ahead of the line, but it's more likely that they're people who knew Jesus. It's more likely that they were friends of Jesus. It's more likely that they were those who identified with the mission and the ministry of Jesus. It's more likely that they were a part of the band of Jesus' followers. It's more likely that they were the disciples of Jesus, accompanying him at the head of the way, clearing the way for Jesus, or so they thought. Perhaps it was James and John. You remember James and John who wanted to sit at the right hand and at the left hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. Perhaps it was Peter. Perhaps it was even Judas who would later betray Jesus. We're not told, but we can be pretty sure that they're part of the Jesus crowd 
that they're part of the Jesus band, that they're those who identified with the mission and the ministry of Jesus, and they're leading the crowd. And the point is in the text that those who identified with Jesus and his ministry, the disciples and the followers and the friends of Jesus thought, this is great. We're at the front of the line We're clearing the way, we're on the march, we're going up to Jerusalem. The mission of Jesus is about to be fulfilled. He's going to overthrow the government, he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, the oppressors, he's going to do away with the religious leaders who have aligned themselves with the oppressors. There's going to be a new government in Jerusalem, in Israel. The Messiah is going to take his rightful place. He is the Savior, and everyone needs to clear the road to make way for this Jesus. Nothing should distract us and him from that mission. If I could put it this way, these were perhaps purpose-driven followers of Jesus. They had a mission to fulfill. There was no time to deal with a distraction like a blind man beside the road. There were more important priorities to, to focus on. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And the problem is that they led the way in a way that was not aligned with the mission and the ministry of Jesus. Earlier, Luke says that the disciples did not understand the meaning of what Jesus said when he was going up to Jerusalem. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So in that vacuum, they drew their own conclusions about what they thought the mission and ministry of Jesus was about. They were going to drive their own agenda, no matter who got run over in the process. And friends, as I reflected on this text this past week, and as I've been working with this text in recent months in my own spiritual life, I've been asking myself, am I that kind of a leader? Am I part of that kind of a crowd? It really focuses our attention on this question, do we we see ourselves as part of those who led the crowd, are there ways in which we sometimes misunderstand the mission and the ministry of Jesus? Are there ways in which we rebuke people when they're trying to get the attention of Jesus, that we actually become obstacles in the way of people getting to Jesus? I ask myself sometimes, are there things that I say Are there things that I do? Are there things that I teach? Are there things in the way that I lead that rather than advancing the reign of God, actually rebuke people and keep them away from Jesus? Keep them from getting the attention of Jesus. Do we think we're doing the work of Jesus but actually sometimes getting in the way? There's a lot of talk today in the church about 
missional ministry and missional leadership, all of which is very important, and I've written about this myself in a number of places, but the reality is that sometimes, in fact, often, I think, in the church, our schemes and our programs and our strategies and our actions and our plans actually hinder the mission and the ministry of Jesus. And so this is a word, it seems to me, first of all, to those of us who lead, whether we're pastors or elders or whether we train pastors as I do or whether we lead in other ways or whether in our own lives, in our lives of witness, sometimes we do things and say things that hinder the working of the kingdom. We get in the way sometimes because we think we know better than Jesus. And what happens is, and I say this to myself this morning as much as I say it to any of you, in doing the work of Jesus, as we think it ought to be done, we sometimes neglect and ignore and marginalize and further oppress the very people about whom Jesus cares. The very people for whom he came the very people for whom he comes to give his life as a ransom, the broken and the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable and the needy and those who need the touch of Jesus, those who need to be healed and those who need to be forgiven of their sin, those who need to be empowered and encouraged and given new life, those who need to be told to rise up and walk, not to be rebuked, but to have a pathway cleared so that they might come to Jesus. Someone sent me this on Facebook a few weeks ago, which in fact I reposted. I don't repost a lot of things, but I reposted this. Sometimes the best evangelism is simply telling people you're a Christian and then not being a complete jerk. Sometimes being a Christian Sometimes, rather, the best evangelism is simply telling people that you're a follower of Jesus and then getting out of the way. Sometimes the better part of evangelism and mission is removing the obstacles so that Jesus' voice can be heard. It's no accident, my friends, that what happens here is almost exactly what happened earlier in Luke chapter 18. In verses 15 to 17, people were bringing babies to Jesus, it says, to touch them, and what happened there? Some of you know that story. What happened? The disciples rebuked them, right? The disciples rebuked the mothers. Jesus doesn't have time for your children. He has more important business to do. But Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. In fact, in another place, Jesus is even more stern, and he says, if you prevent a little one from coming to me, it would be better that you were thrown off into the ocean and drowned. Do we hinder children from coming to Jesus? Do we hinder young people from coming to Jesus because somehow they just don't fit into the way that we think they ought to behave? Do we hinder people, rebuke people from coming to Jesus? poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. This is God's word for us this morning. 
So that's the word of judgment in this text. That's the word of exhortation in this text this morning. But I want to say to you that there's also a word of grace. And there's also a word of salvation because God's word is always a judging word. It confronts us and forces us to ask hard questions about ourselves. But God's word also always comes to us as a deep word of assurance and promise and healing. And the good news in this text is that Jesus ignored those who led the way. He ignored them. Jesus stops, and he ordered the man to be brought to him, and he asks him, and this is a great question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That's the question that Jesus asks this blind man. I suppose in some ways it's obvious. He says, Lord, I want to see And he received his sight and followed Jesus and praises God. But it brings us back to this blind man and to see how profound is Jesus' mission and ministry and how deep is his love and how wide is his reach. Who was this man? We don't know really much about him other than that he was blind and that he was begging beside the road. He was rebuked by those who led the way. He was probably used to being bullied. We know from other texts in the Gospels that people probably considered his blindness as a result of some punishment for sin. He was a man in deep need, in deep pain. He was probably poor. He was broken beyond despair. But he had a voice, and he found his voice, and he yelled out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus answered. And the question that Jesus asks this blind man beside the road, that he asks this suffering man on the road, is the same question that Jesus asks you and asks me in our weakness and in our sinfulness and in our brokenness and in our deep need, in our pain, in our anxiety. I don't know what you've come into this sanctuary with this morning, but Jesus asks of you this morning, what do you want me to do for you? The great spiritual writers in the history of the church have identified this as one of the central questions that can be used in in prayers of self-examination, to examine our own hearts and our own minds and our own motivations and our own deepest needs and our own deepest worries and our own deepest anxieties, all that is a part of who we are. What do we want Jesus to do for us? Is it to heal us? Is it to forgive us? Is it to meet us in some other way? Really, what is my deepest need? Where do I need the touch of Jesus? Where do I need to encounter Jesus in my life? Where does Jesus need to touch my life? 
St. Augustine, in that great quote that he prays in the confession, says that our hearts, my heart is restless, O Lord, until it finds its rest in you. We all have these restless hearts that only Jesus can touch. Teresa of Avila said that we find our fulfillment when what we want is what Jesus wants, when we bring our wills into alignment. What do you want me to do, Jesus asks us, but it invites us then to enter into a relationship with him so that we can find what his will is for us. And the good news is that Jesus wants to give us life, flourishing, salvation, reconciliation, through trusting in him as personal Savior and Lord and healing our brokenness and our pain. So this morning I ask you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you've never invited him in as Lord, I invite you to do so today. If you've never met Jesus on the road of your life, I want to say to you this morning, he's passing by, he's on the road, and whatever cry is coming out from your heart this morning, he is not rebuking you, although others may. He's asking, what do you want me to do for you? He's stopping. He's speaking to you. Don't let him pass by this morning. You may have a voice in your head that says, Jesus would never stop for me. Jesus would never be interested in me. I want to tell you this morning, that's not the voice of Jesus. I don't know what voice it is, but it's not the voice of Jesus. Because Jesus wants to stop. And he wants to say to you, what do you want me to do for you? Hear that voice this morning, friends, and respond in faith. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word always in some way speaks to us. And we thank you for this short story in the Gospel of Luke, which has such rich teaching for us, and we've only scratched the surface this morning, but we believe you're here. We believe that you're speaking to us. Help not one of us to leave this sanctuary this morning before doing the business with you that we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.